Hey, welcome to the Impact Podcast by Youthopia. Join me in meeting the youth of Singapore who are making a positive impact to the world around them. So our guest for today is Joshua Tay. Joshua founded Impact, a non-profit organisation that aims to build a community, especially for at-risk youths. Hi, Joshua. Hi, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be with you. And to all of the listeners out there, I'm Joshua. Uh, and at Impact, it is pretty much as you said, you know, we are, we are really focused on making sure that community spaces are growing healthy spaces. And the way that we do that is by primarily focusing on youths, uh, youths who are not not exactly afflicted, but but they, they come to terms with all sorts of different complex needs. Mm. Uh, and the way that we are primarily engaging them is by identifying key developmental opportunities uh, that range from education to sports to their passions. And we try to do all of this uh, with a holistic understanding of mental wellness and with mental wellness know-hows. Mm, cool. Tell me a bit more about yourself first, how you got, before we go, go on to impact, tell me about how you got started in this space, like the origin story. Yeah, um, so the origin story is nothing too spectacular. Back in 2015, uh, I actually spent some time working in the Singapore Boys Hostel. Uh, Singapore Boys Hostel, it is a youth rehabilitation center. Mm. Uh, that means that if they are juvenile offenders, sometimes they get sent there. Now, I grew up in a super sheltered environment, okay? Um, I grew up being told that, you know, if there are people who are smoking and they have tattoos and they are looking at you, right, you cross the road, you you just don't linger around too much. So it was my first time in an environment where I was around so many youths who were like young people um, who were very different, but at the same time, I came to realize just how similar we all are mm-hmm. at, at a deeper, more fundamental level. And it was also there that I got encouraged I was encouraged by how strong some of the institutional supports uh, actually is and actually can be. In particular, I saw just like the degree of resources and care and relationships that were happening within the institutions. But I was also troubled. I was troubled because I realized when I was inside the institutions, um, especially back in 2015, that when youths were released back into the community, the network of care and resources and support was pretty much dried up, like just like that. Mm. You know, and, and, and that troubled me. Mm. Troubled me because I, I, I saw that there are these youths that I'm starting to care about, but I don't know what happens to them when they are back in the community. Mm. And I wanted to figure out what what can we actually be doing in the community for these youths? How can we partner institutions? How can we support social and case workers, um, people whom I had gotten to know throughout throughout this process of of engaging the youths? And I just wanted to see how we could do better as a a community. So it started from that. Just a pretty simple desire, helping youths in the community. Mm. And I'm I'm curious to know, since then, how has the journey been like? Like, so you you, you mentioned that, you know... um, after these youths come out from these rehabilitation centers, they don't have the kind of support from the community. How does your nonprofit kind of provide them with the, the, the yeah, the care that they 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 so need? Yeah, so um, maybe I can start from the start lah, mm. Right. So 2015 to 2017, we actually failed a couple of. I I actually failed a couple of times. I couldn't really figure out uh, how to best support the youths. But but in 2017, um, a caseworker that I had kept in close contact with. Uh, he came to me, he told me, there's this youth who really wants to try again. Mm. And that meant so much to us he- hearing that he wanted to try again. I mean, for most of us, sitting for your national examinations is pretty much the water that we swim in as, as Singaporean students, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and be- people of this sort. But um, hearing that he wanted to try again was pretty special. Because what we knew of the youth was that he had actually tried before, uh, but he had failed his N-levels. Uh, and to make things worse, his background was... 
honestly just tough. Mm. Um, filled with trauma, had a bunch of abusive experiences back home growing up. Uh, and even in the present, when he would tell his closest family members that he wanted to try again, he would almost always get shut down. He'd just be told that, yeah, I'm going to fail at this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're not just you're just not cut out for studying. You should be going out, earning money, supporting the family in some way. So the fact that he wanted to try again, it meant quite a lot. Um, so we thought, okay, he's not really comfortable with formal institutional setups. Mm. Let, let, let's not try to make him to come down to a center or anything like that. Let's meet him where he's at. Um, so we managed to get a few people who are interested in doing this. We went down, we met him on a weekly basis uh, in the four to five months leading up to his N-levels. And I'm going to tell you, Nicole, it was some of the most discouraging four to five months that we had. This, this was 2017. Um, discouraging because for about half the time right, that, that we had planned sessions, he was either late or he sometimes just wouldn't even show up at all. Mm. So we didn't have very, very high hopes. Then his exam results came and he got B's and C's and it blew our minds. Mm. And then it was only then that he told his caseworker, he told his caseworker that he just didn't understand. He, he didn't understand why there were people out there caring for... He, he didn't understand why there were strangers showing up, telling him that they believed in him, supporting him, waiting for him, even when they had like no sort of material benefit to get from it. And it confused him so much that, that people believed in him that every time he knew someone was just there, waiting for him, believing in him, uh, he went back home and he studied twice as hard. Mm. So that, that, that little experience sort of cemented in us the belief that change oftentimes just penetrates the surface, you know, in, in, in ways that can shock us. That There's a lot that can happen when the right sort of relationships are paired with the right sort of systems. Um, yeah, something good can happen. Hmm. I want to kind of break down, I think, because your non-profit focuses specifically on youths at risk. First of all, I think I want to kind of understand better what does this term mean, like, specifically? Mm. So formally, um, there are if you ask different ministries, you might get slightly varied responses. So mm. if you ask a school, uh, what is an at-risk youth? Then it, it would be the, the youth would be at risk of falling out of the school system. If you ask probation services, they would probably say, uh, "Probation, please correct me if I'm wrong." <laughs> they would probably say that at, at risk of some sort of juvenile offense. Mm. Um, but basically, they are thought to be at risk of um, not being able to transition successfully in their developmental journey. So whether it is completing their education, whether it is developing pro-social behavior, um, whether it's staying crime-free, yep. um, that, that's what they're typically thought to be at risk of. Mm. Um, I think I think that a lot of these youths, they are also at risk of just being disconnected from society at large. They're at risk of being neglected. Um, they're at risk of being labeled and stigmatized and, and just shoehorned into one little model. So... Um, you're asking me what we do at Impart, right? Uh, how, how exactly do, do we help? I realized I didn't really answer that uh, specifically. What we try to do is that we pair key developmental opportunities. So like transitioning through your secondary school experience, uh, getting past that, a key developmental opportunity. And we try to pair that with the right sort of relationships in the community. Uh, pairing resources, relationships, putting together, putting that together in the right sort of structure and trusting that good things come out of our little moments of change. Mm. And it's interesting because I think um, growing up, I think people have a perception of like youth at risk to exactly like what you say, you know, like kind of fall out of like the conventional margins of like what society is like. Um, 
there are certain stereotypes that we associate with them. What are some, like, I guess, from your experience working with them, what are some, like, completely... No, sorry. What are some misconceptions that society might have that you think are maybe outdated or that are invalid, you know, in, in, in the context of today's world? Yeah, th- thanks for raising that, Nicole. I mean, when I think about my own perceptions in, in the past, um, there are two things that come to mind mm. from, from like misunderstandings uh, about, about youths at risk or youths with complex needs. Um, the first is that they are in this situation because they're not trying hard enough. Mm. So it is entirely about effort. Right. So the, the, the first misconception, they are just not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second misconception is that change will come relatively easy or quickly or in a linear form, meaning it is just constant progress step by step and you shouldn't expect any sort of uh, vacillation or ups and downs. Mm. Yeah. So two things, um, they're not trying hard enough. Second thing, change comes easy. Mm. And how do we, I guess, like um, change like the perception that we have as a society towards like youth like these? As much as I would like it to be the case, uh, I'm super aware that people aren't going to change just by listening to a podcast like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. As much as this might prompt you or prod you to think in different directions, um, I, I really think that so much of it comes from seeing people face-to-face, mm. being a part of their lives, recognizing that you're not just giving back or helping out. What you really want is to commit yourself to be a part of the community. And not just a part of the community that's nice and sanitized and safe and known to you, right? You want to be a part of the community and its fullness uh, and the fullness of its complexity. That that, that means spending time. Uh, That means hard moments of waiting. Mm. Uh, That means radical moments of joy. Uh, It means the entire spectrum. So to really get past these misconceptions, spend time getting to know people. Mm. I think on that note, it's interesting because I think ultimately still um, the hope if let's say we do know we have a couple of youths in our lives, right? We, we, We ideally want them to go down a successful lead successful lives, right? Integrate well in society. I guess my question is what are some of the factors that can cause youth to end up in a situation where they are at risk? Could it be like some external factors or are most of the factors like internal? And I guess how can we, if let's say I I do have like a younger sister, for instance, right? How do I ensure that she doesn't end up becoming like at risk? So I think uh, statistically you see that there is an incredibly high correlation between at-risk behavior and certain socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's just the correlation. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is causation as well in the mm-hmm. sense that if growing up, you've just had a really turbulent environment uh, where there isn't really stability, there isn't really trust, um, and you don't feel as though you can excel in the things that the world, our society tells you you must excel at to be good, then you'll naturally seek to be good in other areas. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of the youth that, that, that we meet, um, the reason why they seem to pursue seemingly deviant behavior is simply because they just can't excel in the normal ways. No one has ever encouraged them or affirmed them that they can excel in positive ways. So they seek... Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, when I was 14, 15, 16, what I really wanted was to be known, to have an identity of my own. And if I can't do well in school, if I don't have a happy home environment, then I'm just going to look for other ways to to prove my identity yep. and, and to craft something for myself. 
Um, so a lot of it is environmental. I, I think part of my work, uh, part of our work at Impart, begins by the acceptance or the acknowledgement that at the end of the day, we are but a part. Mm. You know, we're just one part of the picture. Uh, what we really need is a larger community change or what we really need is larger uh, involvement and environments. So with that said, I, I think the most helpful thing that you can do is to form healthy relationships. Form healthy relationships that affirm and encourage positive traits. Uh, form healthy relationships that are not just built on penalizing wrongdoing, mm. uh, but actually figuring out these little sprouts of potential uh, and mm. making sure that you're tending to them well. Mm. Seems like the solution is so simple, right? <laughs> yeah, I sure, I sure hope so. Uh, but people are complex, lah, right? True. I mean... People are complex. Relationships are difficult. I, mm. I say it's relationships, but recognizing that in my own life, uh, managing relationships, caring for the people I love, I am definitely not perfect at that. Yeah, so I, I shouldn't expect this to be any less difficult. So I think a lot of times when it comes to the conversations around like at-risk youths, there's a perception, and I would say even, even my own perception, is that the government should be the one helping them. They should be providing more resources to ensure that there's a the 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 bridge be, the gap between like reintegrating back in society and like going on a more um on a brighter path is left up to the government but what you're doing is a very like ground up initiative i guess my question is like to to that what do you have to say and in terms of like understanding how the government has a part to play and you guys have a part to play where do you see like the disparity or is there yeah what 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 does that look like for you so I think on this front, as it relates to the government's involvement, um, Singapore has sort of a little bit, in, in, in some sense, Singapore has been uh, hampered by the government's success. So, so by, mm. by this, I simply mean that the government has done such a great job across most fronts of like centralized planning and uh, building strong institutions and enacting effective policy that we sort of expect them to be able to do the same for the community. Mm. Uh, actually, what I hear from the government's messaging uh, rather consistently is that the government acknowledges that these things that are happening in communities, in families, in society, it is not something that the government can solve with good policy. Uh, I think the government has been pretty clear about that actually in its messaging. But part of it perhaps could be our experience of the sort of... Um, uh, modes of governance that has led us to believe that it is ultimately the government's responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the government does have a very clear role to play. They have the role of building strong institutions. They have the role of um, dispersing or, or dispensing resources in, in a timely, efficient fashion. But at the end of the day, when it concerns human interaction and involvement, uh, which is what all of this really is, this is really humans relating to humans, you you can't solve that with policy alone. Mm. So the, the the role that the community has to play um, is to start looking at these institutions that the government has built and to think, ask ourselves, how are we connecting to these institutions? How are we collaborating with them? And how are we helping to foster change within our communities or maybe even within these institutions? Mm. So would you say that, I guess, where you guys come in is kind of like, like a hand-in-hand -hand with the government in terms of the value add for these youths. Yeah, I mean, I, I realize I've been speaking in rather broad categories like institutions mm -hmm. and communities, right? So very tangibly, um, a clear example would be in any sort of social service situation, 
for any youth that has complex needs, nine times out of ten, the youth will already be connected to something within the existing social service infrastructure. So something like a caseworker, mm. a social worker, mm. probably already known to the youth. Uh, what we realized at Impart pretty early on was that there's so much activity in the community space, but there is an absence perhaps of collaboration and cooperation between people in the community and social workers and caseworkers. It seems like the most natural instinct, right? But somehow it just hasn't really been happening that much. Mm -hmm. So when we started in part, we were very, very focused and very, very serious about making sure that we are collaborating with social workers and caseworkers. If there's any volunteer engaging a youth, we wanted to make sure that we knew who the social worker is and that we were just having healthy communication, sharing about what's happening in the youth's life, sharing about how our engagement is going. And in certain situations of um, crisis, deferring or leaning on the professional's expertise, leaning on what the social worker can, can help us with in, in navigating these tough situations and recognizing that actually this many helping hands approach, it really only works when the hands are joined together. Mm, mm, interesting. So... I guess my question is from 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 the many experiences or the, the years that you guys have been around, right? What are, and you shared earlier just now about the case with the boy who was motivated to redo his N-levels. I'm wondering if there's other examples of, you know, how you guys managed to bridge the gap and what are some of the more like successful examples or like memorable instances that have really been motivating you guys to keep pushing on? Yeah, um, I can, I'll, I'll give you two. One is, one concerns a very, very tangible marker of success. Mm. Uh, the second concerns success in its most qualitative personal formula. Uh, the, the, the first concerns a 25-year-old, a 25-year-old who came to us through a community referral, actually. So his girlfriend uh, had experienced some support from, from community initiatives. She realized that, hey, there are people that I can trust in this space who actually want to help me even though my needs are very complex and she referred her, her boyfriend to us. Um, her boyfriend, 25 years old, right, ha had been out of school for about seven plus years, mm. uh, didn't manage to complete his tertiary education. Mm. But he came to us wanting to try again. Um, we looked at his situation. We realized that what would work best for him was not your formal mode of education. So he wanted to go to polytechnic. We realized it doesn't make sense to get him to try to take his O-levels again given the short runway and we, de we decided to look for alternatives. We realized that there are actually alternatives out there. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of this, but if there are adults who want to reintegrate into the workforce or upskill themselves, there's this program called the Workplace Literacy and Numeracy Program. It, it is a Workplace Literacy and Numeracy Program. No, not many people have heard of it. Uh, it is administered by, I think, Workforce Singapore. Mm. I, I, I might be off a little bit on that, but basically... It is a certification that assesses your baseline literacy and numeracy um, ability so that you can function in the workplace. If you take the test, if you score well enough, you can actually use this certificate to apply for ITE or Polytechnic if you have the relevant uh, qualifications. The trouble is that um, there aren't any sort of community resources for this WPLN program. So I'm thinking about how I can express this as as legitimately as possible. Mm. What we did at Impart was that we took the test for ourselves. We took this WPLN program for ourselves so that we could understand what the youths would be going through mm. and the challenges that they would be meeting through this relatively unique assessment. And then um, help them later on. Is it? Yeah, so we did it. We tried to understand the syllabus and we tried to create 
uh, some sort of a syllabus for it on our own. So we, we managed to do that actually. And this 25-year-old youth was actually helped. Uh, he managed to take it, prepare for the exam, complete it. Uh, and he got into polytechnic after being out of school for, what, seven years and after being wrapped up a little bit in certain juvenile delin- delinquency. And seeing him do that uh, and receiving his constant updates to this day, actually just... Two weeks ago, he messaged me on WhatsApp sharing his poly results. Uh, in his first term, right, he, he got pretty much all A's. Mm. Like all A's and I think one A minus or B plus or something like that. And we were elated. And, and then for this term, he, he was telling me, law is so difficult. I have to take a law module in, in, in polytechnic. I, I, I didn't know people in poly had to do law modules. Um, but apparently it's there and, and that's great. But it's also really, really difficult. And the entire time he was just telling me, it's so difficult. How am I going to do this? Mm. Uh, but I, I, I want to keep trying. Mm. I, I remember that that this sort of change, this sort of progress is possible. I want to keep trying. Uh, and he did it and he completed it. He he got a pretty good grade. He, he was sharing it with us. And just seeing these experiences, recognizing that even if the formal pathways haven't worked, there is still a way forward. Uh, that has helped me a lot in, in remembering that a little change can go a long way. So that, that that's a pretty tangible one, right? Mm. Uh, a youth who had been out of school for a long time actually seeing tangible progress. Um, there's another story that has always stayed with me another experience this concerns a girl who when we met her she was 19 years old she had not been in school uh, since she was 13 her literacy levels pretty low Mm. we started doing work with her we started building up her baseline literacy and numeracy competencies and it was so encouraging. Like, she was so earnest. She had so much potential. Uh, she had such a fervor for learning. She wanted to better herself so that she could care for her family and all of that. And it was a wonderful first month. And then she found out that she was five months pregnant. Hmm. The first time she knew she was pregnant was when she actually, I mean, she only figured out she was pregnant when, when it was five months in. Um, and it's a really complex situation but it was devastating for her and her mom. Mm. Um, it, it was not planned. It was, the, the entire process was very traumatic. Uh, and in all likelihood, she would have stopped trying. So I, I remember this very vividly on, on the day after we had news of, of the pregnancy. I met her and her mom at, at the Void Deck. And it was just the first few moments of meeting together, right? It was filled with, like the tension was so thick and yeah, you, you, you could feel how much grief was was just bubbling below the surface and how much frustration. And that was pretty much the tone of the entire hour-long conversation we had. Mm. There was crying. There was like, what am I going to do? There was, I, I don't know if I can do this. And, and then at the, at the end of that hour-long chat, uh, as we were trying to plan the way forward, she, she turned and, and she looked at me and she said, Joshua, I, I remember what my volunteer taught me just last week. My, my volunteer taught me a new word. She taught me this word, potential. And, and my volunteer was telling me the entire time, you have potential. Right? You have potential. And, and throughout this entire period, when, when, I, when I think about all of the trouble that is coming, that I will have to go through, I keep remembering this word, that, that I have potential. So I don't want to give up. Uh, please don't give up on me. Please, please, let, 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 let's keep doing this. When I, when I remember this situation, I just remember how these radically, radically small moments, teaching someone basic vocabulary, 
it has so much potential for for just reshaping their entire narrative for how, how they think about themselves how they think about their future how they think about their communities and uh, th- these little moments go a long way mm. and has helped me to remember that as much as I may not understand things in the present there's just so much more that could be happening mm. thank you for sharing that I I felt something <laughs> it was very um yeah very emotional stories thank you for for sharing that with me. I think my follow-up question to you is on that vein, what is the value in giving people like second chances? I think the importance of second chances, um, it's so connected to, to this entire idea of potential. When, when we write people off, we miss out on witnessing this sort of potential unfolding. Uh, and we are pretty much neglecting the sort of potential that's always there in their lives. Mm. Um, but apart from the importance of doing it, right, I, I, I think the other angle is to recognize that it is the entirely necessary and normal sort of response. We, we, we should be normalizing it, really. Because the moment we understand that any sort of presenting situation or any sort of presenting behavior that might seem problematic, laziness, um, rebelliousness, anything of that sort, there's just such a complex web of stories that lie behind it. The moment you see that, the moment you recognize that, how can you not want to give a second, third, fourth, mm. fifth, however many of chance, recognizing that there's just so much going on and it'll take time to unfold. Mm. Mm. I'm curious to know, so I mean, in your experience working with youths, is there how do you identify that like one moment or like that one indicator of, you know, like when you speak with them, right, that they are willing to take that step or that, yeah, that step to change? Like, is there that one like telling moment, you know, that makes you want to like invest in them, in their potential? So I, I think there are some cases where um there are. So, so th- this would be an extrinsic motivation where the youth show some sort of sign and mm. then I'm further encouraged. So there, there are certain instances like like in the stories that I shared where there are like very tangible moments where where it connected to me on a on such a deep level. Um, there are but the normal ordinary situation is that you you don't really see that all the time. Mm. Uh, you have to believe that that it, it will work out in, in the long run. Um, you, you don't always see what uh, there are ordinary moments for a reason. Mm. Uh, they are well, ordinary. Um, what drives it forward would vary from individual to individual in my organization. Um, there are all sorts of people with all sorts of motivations and so many of them just wonderful motivations for, for helping others. So yeah, um, apart from these extrinsic motivations, I, I would say very much figure out, be clear about your own intrinsic internal motivations for doing it. Mm. And I think for the purposes of this like particular episode, um, most of our listeners are youths. I'm wondering if... In the in, in this space, do you have any like parting words of like wisdom or like encouragement for anybody who's tuning in with regards to like either volunteering or you know like going about on their untapped potential or like something that they might have been sitting on for a while and are afraid to try, for instance? Yeah. Something that has helped me personally, um, are old words. I, I think it was around the seventh <laughs> century, <laughs> which is a very, very, very long time ago, where where there's this uh, there's this church person, 
who was talking about this idea, th- th- this idea being, uh, it's called EPNA, E-P-N-A, mm-hmm. the expulsive power of a new affection. Mm. Okay, quite, quite chim, right? Mm. Expulsive power of a new affection. But basically, what, what, what this church person was saying um, was that if you want to find like real change in your life, it's not enough for you to be told what not to do. You can't just be told that this thing is a bad thing or that this thing is sin or anything of that sort. What you need are new affections that drive out old affections. Mm. So don't, 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 don't simply try to figure out what's wrong. Uh, you have to find something greater, something, something bigger than yourself, uh, something that is able to tell you this is what real affection is meant to be like. So if you're addicted to anything, uh, if you feel as though these things that you know you really shouldn't be doing, you just keep going back to it. The, the, the problem, the solution isn't just identifying that this is a wrong thing. You've got to find a new affection for, for the right things. Hmm. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing. I think whatever, all the stories you've shared were incredibly heartwarming and you've imparted lots of like words of wisdom. It's really, really inspiring. So I think for anybody who's tuning in, if you're interested in finding out more about Impart and their work, you can check out their website at impart.sg. Or, yeah, reach out to Joshua. I think he will be more than willing to help. To help out. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Nicole. So, j- just a quick ending note. Mm-hmm. Um, my comms team is always telling me to say this. And it is that when you look at the word in part, it also spells, I am part. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is really the broader vision that we are shooting for. La, right? We, we want people to be able to say at the end of the day that they are part of something larger. Not not just about imparting skills. So yeah, check us out. Uh, check us out. Reach out. I'd be happy to chat. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you, Nicole. This show was brought to you by Youthopia. This project showcases everyday Singaporeans that have made an impact in our society. Have someone in mind? Nominate that person at youthopia.sg forward slash impact.